We have been enjoying a wonderful study, sort of taking the Luke 9.23, where Jesus says, you want to follow me, you take up your cross, you deny yourself, and you follow my path. And we've kind of spread it out a little bit, and we're looking at some practical principles for how you deny yourself. How do you walk with the Lord in a way that is more of Christ and less of you? And you remember that uh, in these principles, there are all kinds of ways that the Scriptures teach us to get away from ourselves and deny ourselves and follow Christ as we ought to follow Him. When Jesus used the phrase, you must deny yourself, He's calling for a level of commitment that, that literally says we count our own lives as nothing. In fact, listen to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, when he was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, and he was saying, I'm headed to Jerusalem, you're not going to see me again, I know that suffering awaits me there in Jerusalem. And he says in that discussion with them at the docks, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. So there it is in one statement, exactly what a follower of Jesus Christ ought to have as the target, the goal, that for which we strive with all of our might. Till we get to the place where we don't count our own life as dear to ourselves, and then Paul went on to say, in order that I might finish the work God's given me to do. We are called to this conviction as true followers of Jesus Christ. We all have a work to do. We all have been commissioned by the Lord, those of us who know and love him. We all must work for the gospel until we meet Christ and spend eternity with him in glory. And we've been given a measure of giftedness to do that. But if in order for you to be effective in that and walk faithfully in that and be maximally used for the honor of Christ... That's what Jesus meant on the hillside when he said, all of you who are saying you want to follow me, well, here's what it means. It means you have less of you and more of me, and you get to the point where your goal in life is to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Think what I think, love what I love, hate what I hate, walk where I walk, suffer as I suffer, bear reproach as I bear reproach. Suffer rejection if need be, as I suffer rejection, even to the end of your life. The martyrs, as John speaks of them in the time of the tribulation, spoken of in Revelation chapter 12, it says of the martyrs there that they were those who did not love even their own life unto death. If their life was going to be taken from them, then for the sake of Christ they laid it down And so we know that. We know that a true disciple of Jesus Christ is called to face the cost, whatever it might be. Allegiance to Christ would cost you your reputation, perhaps, more and more in our culture. It could cost you friends that you have loved dearly. It could cost you your job, even your daily sustenance, and perhaps even your own life. But a true disciple of Christ doesn't count their life as dear to themselves but that we might finish whatever task God's given us to do here on earth. That's what it means to have more of Christ and less of yourself. Now, as I said to you, it's not willpower. It's not grinding out some disciplined life for a better you. It's not any of those things. To die to self is to live for Christ under the power of the Spirit. It's only by His grace that it is accomplished. But to deny yourself, therefore, is to walk in the power of the Spirit. To say no to those things you prefer about yourself above Christ. 
To love Christ is to love everything about Christ at the expense of loving yourself, if we could say it that way. And it happens when we walk by faith and the honor and the glory of Christ increasingly then becomes our highest affection and our greatest goal. And so I've been walking through some practical steps. We've been needing to get through a list of eight of them, and we've been taking them almost one per Sunday. First Sunday, there was two of them. Second time, it was one. I'm afraid today there's going to be one. We're actually half a one, sorry. <laughs> We're slowing down even more. Here were the first few that we have looked at. If you're going to have more of Christ and less of you, then there's got to be an everyday sort of dependence or, or we might say it this way, a confession of your own fallenness and therefore your need for him. So we just said you need to pray daily for spiritual understanding. You can't on your own think about the right things. You need the grace of God to renew your mind. The grace of God to renew your heart and help you walk into things that are of spiritual understanding. So every day you get up, if you want to have more of Christ and less of you, you can't go out the door thinking you got this. Let him who thinks he stands, what? Take heed lest you fall flat. You must not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, Romans 12, verse 3. But to think so as to have sound judgment. Every day we pray for spiritual understanding because we know our fallen condition, and if left to yourself, it's going to get messier. The second principle was to orient your life so that everything about your life supports and promotes a truth centered life, to orient your time and your, the structure of the way you live, 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline your life to promote things that are godly and righteous, and we talked about that. To pray for daily spiritual understanding is the death of self-reliance. To orient your life toward truth is the death of self-indulgence. The third principle we, we looked at last time, and that is this, and it, it overlaps with the second. If you're going to orient your life toward truth, then as the truth hits you, the third step to more of Christ and less of you is to allow the truth to have its way with you. In other words, allow it to indict the areas you need help and you need to grow and that you are neglectful and where you sin. Allow the truth to indict you and then correct and build in a new way. First Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16. The word of God is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof. <laughs> it's profitable for teaching and reproof. You got to let it reprove you and expose you as we looked at last time. And then let it correct you and train you in righteousness. That's the death of self-exaltation. Principle number four we're going to look at today. So pray for daily spiritual understanding. Orient your daily life toward truth. Allow the truth to indict and correct your heart. Fourthly, if you want to have more of Christ and less of you, you're going to have to permanently seal up sin's portals. Permanently seal up sin's portals or ways that temptation gains access to you. This will then mean the death of self-deception. Things that deceive, that are hanging off of our life. Practical things in your life that you ought to think more carefully about. Take your Bibles and look with me at Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 12. 
very, very important discussion because you remember in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, there are names mentioned going all the way back to Abel's faith. And Abel, who had faith in God, obeyed God and died to himself and honored God. And then there's this lineup in chapter 11 of all these people who for the sake of knowing God, looking to God, honoring God, walking with God, they died to self by faith in some way. And so on the basis of that list of people who did remarkable things for God, they were useful to God, they, they actually were transformed by God. They weren't perfect, messy names on that list, just like us. But God used them to demonstrate his faithfulness in his truth and used them in mighty ways. Why? Because they died to self and lived for Christ. And one of the things they did in their act of faith on a daily basis is get rid of the things that would hinder their greatest and most maximum growth. And so, verse 1 of chapter 12 The writer says, now based upon that whole list of people, or since we have so great a a surrounding cloud of witnesses, witnesses to what? To how the Christian life is lived, its difficulty, the faith required to live it, honoring Christ rather than yourself. A greater cloud of witnesses that have gone before us to walk this walk. Since we have that, then let us, and here it is, let us also lay aside every excess, and the sin which so easily entangles us. I love the words of Thomas Watson when he talks about the Christian and denying the excesses in his life. He says, more people are hurt by excess in good things than by meddling with bad things. (laughs) It's true. He says, excess clouds the mind, chokes good affections, and provokes cravings. The rankest weeds grow out of the fattest soil. (laughs) That's a great metaphor. That's right. The, The softer your life, the more careless your life, the more excess baggage is hanging off your life. And therefore, as the writer of Hebrews says, you're going to run the race of the Christian life more slowly, notice verse, 12, uh, verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set f- before us. What is assumed here is that you're running. What is assumed here is that it's not going to be easy because you need endurance to do it. But what is said here is that if you don't think carefully about laying aside or putting aside excess, things that stir up and churn up areas of temptation for your particular weaknesses, you're going to be in real trouble. You're going to have trouble becoming a person who follows Christ for his sake and is more of Christ and less of you in your life. You're going to have a lot of trouble if you don't deal with these encumbrances. He uses the garment metaphor, laid aside like like an old garment. I'm going to use the portal metaphor like a gap, a hole, some way in which something is getting in that, that you haven't necessarily closed off and permanently sealed up. And if there's going to be the death of self-deception, then you've got to think carefully about some of these things because they're getting in and the Bible warns that they can be dangerous. So what is the excess in your life that keeps you from preferring Christ 
when you're faced with the choice, particularly in areas that are besetting, you know, real difficulties, areas where you've taken one step forward and four steps backward. And the Christian life is like that, isn't it? Battling sin is very, very challenging. Uh, Some of you have, in this little series, been jotting me notes or asking me questions about this. And one one of the common threads or the questions that bubbles up into our mind, which is, which is familiar to all of us, is why does this battle have to be so difficult? Couldn't God make it easier? Couldn't God make the battle easier? Well, of course he could, but he accomplishes some things in leaving us to the difficulty until we meet Christ. He accomplishes some things that are absolutely critical and far more important than an easy path for us. For one thing, God is testing our loyalty and our allegiance. He's testing it. In Romans chapter 4, Paul mentions there how Abraham was tested in his faith and his loyalty to God. How was he tested? Well, you remember, just, just take your mind for a moment back to Abraham in Genesis when he had waited for a son that was promised to him through which the gospel would then come to all the nations and Isaac was born. Well, Abraham already knew God. He'd already believed in God. His faith was already credited to his account as righteousness. He was already covered even before the Savior came and died for sinners. Abraham's faith brought him into that great relationship with God. So he was a child of God. God knew he believed him. God knew he was already a lover of God and a God-fearer. He was God's child. But God took his faith and tested it because Isaac was born. And the concern was, look, Abraham, I want to test your faith so that you know and everyone else knows and I've confirmed that you will have preference for me even when it comes down to the thing you love most. So what did he do? He told him the unthinkable. I want you to take Isaac, go up on the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him there. Abraham went. He didn't know what was going to happen. He certainly trusted his God, but he had no clue what was going to happen. He had every intention of obeying God on that mountain, and he did. He took that stake and tied Isaac to the altar, and in one swift move was about to plunge that knife into his beloved son of promise. And you know the story. God said, halt, and there was a a substitute, a ram caught in the bush who would be the sacrifice to honor the Lord. Do you remember what God said? If you've studied that text, God said, Abraham, now I know that you will not withhold the thing you love most from me. What was that? It was a test of loyalty. Did God know how the test would turn out? Yes, because it's God that grants faith and God that strengthens it. And God never puts you through a test you cannot handle, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, without a way of growing your faith and not sinning. But the fact is, God does test our faith. So the battle with sin is difficult, but God is... He's testing and affirming and manifesting that the faith he put within you is is stronger, it's getting stronger, it's growing through testing. There's something else that God does in this difficult battle we have with sin. He's highlighting and manifesting his perfections and his power. Every time you come through a test, every time you get refined in the test, God's mercy, love, compassion, faithfulness, power are on display. And God loves that. He loves that. He could take you home right now and you'd be perfect. And uh, we'd have a little chaos in the service if he did that. 
right here, but he could. He could perfect you. Right now, the battle would be over. But if he's left you here until you meet Christ, then this testing goes on and God continues to manifest his power and his grace and his mercy while he tests you. And there's a third thing he accomplishes. He uses your and my transformed lives lives to bring the gospel to others who need Christ. And Matthew 5, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your righteous works and come to glorify their Father who's in heaven. That's what you have here. You have this wonderful testing of our faith. But God is going to allow you to taste the bitterness of not getting rid of excess. So I've just kind of jotted down a list of excesses, things that are portals through which sin comes. And I told the first service, you know, I'd hope to get through, you know, this list, and it's a fairly long one. We're going we're gonna to cut it in half because I just can't really get through it in a quick way if we're going to really think this through carefully. And this is, this is sort of practical and very penetrating. What are the portals through which excess comes to your life and hangs on you while you're trying to run the race? It's dragging you down. Things that you ought not to be tempted by, but you leave the portal open and the temptation comes in and continues to exploit weaknesses that we have that don't need to be exploited. Christian life's difficult enough, but when we leave portals open and we don't close them, we get self-deceived. So where are all those portals? Let's just talk about a few categories. First of all, portal number one is friends. Portal number one is your choice of friends. Proverbs 14, verse 7. Just so you can keep your pen out, if you're taking notes, you can jot a few of these down. But Proverbs 14, verse 7. Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern or really know the words of knowledge. You spend time with the wrong kind of people casually, I'm not talking about for the gospel's sake or even to minister to them, but I'm talking about casually, it becomes a portal through which your spiritual life can be weakened and sin can easily enter that entangles you, writer of Hebrews indicates. Friendships are a problem because we love people. We are relational. God designed us to be so. The problem is we have weaknesses, and when we make a friendship, we sometimes don't imagine that we're going to be exploited by Satan in that friendship. To us, it just seems like something fairly neutral. When Solomon was instructing his sons, the bottom line is he said to them early on, and you dads ought to take note of this and put the Proverbs in front of your your children often, but he put them in front of his sons. He wrote them out, and so often it had to do with certain kinds of friends. The Proverbs are full of warnings about certain kinds of friends. In Proverbs 14.7, you have a fool mentioned. What is that? That's a person with ungodly perspectives because they are anti-God. They may not be overtly anti-God, but they just don't care about him. They're indifferent or hostile. And Psalm 1 picks up that same theme, and Psalm 1 talks about living around, living comfortably around scoffers. Notice Psalm 1 for a moment. There is language there that you mustn't forget. Take your Bible and look at Psalm 1. This is very, very important because when you think about how the Psalter opens, this is what it opens with in Scripture. 
Psalm 1, verse 1, how blessed or happy or fulfilled is the man, and then three, threefold, who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. That is to say, he's not living by their ethics. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't live comfortably where they live. I'm not talking about living in a neighborhood of unbelievers. He's talking about you, you go into the path, the places they go. You casually traffic where they traffic. You comfortably walk around and do your world, your, your life in the same way they do their life at the same places and with the same crowds. That's what it means to stand in the path of sinners. Nor does the blessed man sit in the seat of scoffers. He does not take up his place with the same opinions and mindset of those who scoff at God. Listen, if you spend enough time with friends that scoff at God, it will begin to erode your convictions. Proverbs 6, verse 17, talks about arrogant talkers. Spend your time with people who boast and brag and, uh, and love to puff up the areas of pride. You know what's going to happen? Your pride is going to get puffed up. You're going to take on that flavor if you casually spend time with arrogant, boastful people. Life is humbling. And life has consequences that should naturally humble even unbelievers. And when you spend time with people who love to brag and love to boast as if the circumstances and difficulties of life do not humble them and make them dependent upon God, you're going to have a major problem over time. They're going to influence you. Celebrating arrogance is a dangerous thing for Christians. It's a portal through which temptation comes to your own pride. Anti-authority and unteachable people. Look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Proverbs 1, verse 7. Solomon says that he wrote the Proverbs so that people would fear God. His sons would fear God because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Anyone who thinks they are wise apart from the things that God has revealed, is anti-authority. They're self-authority. They're autonomous. They're unteachable. You spend enough time with people like that on a casual basis, not on a gospel basis, you're going to have trouble. You know why? Because the flesh is (laughs) anti-authority. You have it in you, I have it in me. We made bumper stickers out of it. Question authority. I mean, that's the way we live our life in our culture. No one's going to tell me what to do. I am my own authority, the captain of my own destiny. You know what? Christians are to come immediately and constantly under the authority of what God says about life, death, heaven, hell, the future, the past, morality, righteousness, unrighteousness, judgment, sin, life, death. God has something to say about all that is really what matters, and we ought to submit to it. But you spend time with friends who are anti-authority and unteachable, and you will become like them. And the Proverbs goes on. Liars are mentioned in chapter 10 and verse 19. Schemers of evil. I used to go through Proverbs 1, verse 19 to 24, all the time with my kids. I used to go through it all the time with them. Schemers of evil, uh, chapter 1, verse 10 through 19, rather. And right there, people who devise evil, stay away from friends who like to sit around and talk about how, and and make light of the harm of other people. They make light of people being harmed and and, uh, 
and someone being hurt and people who lack compassion. You shouldn't casually spend time with people who love to sit around and make light of the harm of others. People who love to sit around and scheme about ways they can defy government and defy uh, authorities and defy society and, and just flaunt their, their independence and their evil. You, you don't have casual relationships with those people without severe trouble to your life. It's a portal. And then there's angry and unrestrained people. Proverbs 20 verse 3 warns against spending time with someone who can't restrain themselves. The 22nd chapter is the same thing, verses 24 and 25. Friends who are angry and unrestrained. You spend casual time with them, it's a portal. They're going to tempt you to anger. Why? Because in their anger, they're constantly defying the sovereign work of God, and they're constantly speaking their own mind with emotional upheaval. And your emotions are going to be tempted. Your sense of justice is going to be tempted. And when something happens to you, you're going to, you're going to rise up because you've, it's excess baggage. You don't need it. Vengeful people are warned against. Even whisperers and flatterers, people who love to gain an advantage by taking advantage of someone with clever words and then on the backside slandering them to gain an advantage or whispering against them to do them harm. We're warned in Proverbs 10, 18 to stay away from such people. Are your friends a portal through which Temptation is coming and weakening your love for Christ, your preference for Christ. You can't treat friends casually as the scriptures teach. Let's go one step further, a portal, a second portal. Environments and, and let's just, let's say media that is defiling. Environments and media exposure that is defiling. Say, so what do you mean? Well, I'm not talking about the fact that you see society and what's in society. I mean, we raised four kids in Los Angeles. Uh, you can't get any more defiling than the culture in Los Angeles across the globe. It's brutal just about everywhere you go, and there are very few places where you're not exposed to those things. But I remember even when we were raising our kids, we knew it was there. They knew it was there, but we tried to give them the insulation of the scriptures t- with which to filter that stuff and know God's perspective on it. And so we would raise them in that area, and, and other than times when we might have thought they were unsafe because of the culture, the fact is you, you, don't, you can't get away from exposure to what our culture is doing. What you can do is not casually involve yourself with such things. Indifferently involve yourself with such things. For example, an environment or media exposure that might be defiling is when you're involved at some level with people who are blasphemous. I'm not talking about religious blasphemy, just blasphemy in general. Not people who are part of false religions who blaspheme God. I'm talking about people in surroundings where, where there's this hostility to God or the things of God or an open mocking of the things of God and you, you're around them so you try to blend in because you don't want to stand out. To deny self is to bear the reproach of Christ And you may not be able to say something to those people in the environment they're in and control their public public environment, but you don't have to casually have involvement with people who openly mock the things of God and celebrate their mockery of it. Christians try to do that sometimes because they try to blend in with those who are openly hostile to the things of God. How about involvement at some level with those who call evil good and good evil? People who 
who know because you've said it to them. They're part of your circle. They know what you stand for. And yet they obviously are anti what the scriptures say about those things, whether it's moral issues or integrity issues or truth or doctrinal issues. And you become comfortable with, with them calling good evil and evil good. You don't do it, but you're comfortable that, that they do it. That's a defiling environment. How about environments where perversion is actually celebrated? You can't always get away from the perversion in society, but where it is celebrated and it starts to become an issue in your conscience, do you suppress those pangs of conscience around friends who test the limits of moral decency? Do you suppress those pangs of conscience? Or do you just get out of there? I remember one time in the military, you know, I, I had to be around people in the military. They're pagan, and it was good gospel opportunity, but it was, you know, every, a lot of times it stings your Christian sensibilities. And so I'd be around those people, and I can't stop their language. I can't stop their talk, especially when I'm on the job. But I remember one particular time, although it happened often, I was standing around in a group of them, and as a team, you know, we're part of a team, part of a crew, part of a, uh, you know, a... a, a um, a task, if you will. So I have no problem being around that. And then all of a sudden, this massively perversion conversa- perverted conversation broke out, and I excused myself. And one of them, you know, approached me and said, "You know, I'm offended at that. And why? Why did you leave? I mean, aren't you part of our team?" And I said, well, I'm, "I'm part of the team when it comes to accomplishing what the military wants us to accomplish." But clearly, uh, I don't talk like that. Um, I don't, and he said, well, you're judging us. I'm I'm just living my life. You didn't seem to ask my permission when you started that conversation. Um, That's why I excused myself. I didn't point my finger at you. You can live the way you want, believe what you want, but I I have to live what I believe and, you know, became points of discussion, but sometimes Christians won't do that. I'm not talking about when you can't get away from it, but when you can, they won't. It's a portal in your life, beloved. You suppress those pangs of conscience. What about where greed is encouraged and exploited? Do you have comfortable involvement around environments or media where greed is encouraged and exploited in all kinds of ways? You're comfortable with it? You have friends that cheat on their taxes, want to get an advantage, and you're comfortable with it as a Christian? Other people who want to defy authority at every level? Maybe they walk out of the store, someone gave them more change than they than they should have gotten, and they celebrate it, and you, you just say nothing. It's a portal. What about meaningless, the, the celebration of meaningless violence? Don't have a problem with the fact that our society is violent. Don't have a problem with stories that have violence in them. The Bible's got violence in it. I'm talking about the celebration and exploitation of meaningless graphic violence. It's a portal in your life. It desensitizes you to what God thinks about compassion for human life. It desensitizes you. Ask any person that has worked in an abortion clinic for any length of time. They will tell you what happens to the conscience. I'm talking about people who profess Christ, not the average unbeliever. It desensitizes the conscience when you hang around those things and have involvement in them casually. Over time, you just don't see the violence of it, the graphic lack of compassion in it, the, the disregard, utter disregard for human life in it. And I know we have all kinds of media and environments today 
that uh, have all kinds of stories and plot lines to those things. And you have to make your choices. I can't get in your home and you can't get in my home and tell us exactly what you ought to expose yourself to or whatever. But I'll tell you this, if it's meaningless and gratuitous and graphic, it can be a portal through which excess comes to your life. Are you being careful about that? What about voyeurism? Watching indecency and illicit sexuality, just watching it. I'm not talking about someone who's trying to battle against pornography in their life, although our, our culture and in the church, we're steeped with those kinds of temptations and troubles. But I'm just talking about media that you would casually bring into your life and expose your mind to. One time I was talking with a friend who took his family to this wonderful lake spot and they were camped out by the side of the lake and swimming and had three or four days of just wonderful time. It was this pristine looking area and, uh, and then on the last day they took a hike and they went up on the hillside and they looked down on the setting and there was trash all around and the water was full of scum and it was stagnant and there they were down at the water's edge as if it was the most wonderful environment, didn't notice, hadn't got any big picture look at it. Listen, if you have no filter. You're like the person in Proverbs 1 whom Solomon warns is naive. He tried to give the Proverbs to naive people. That is the Hebrew word for no filter. And sometimes there are portals in our life where we are allowing in things at a casual level And um, it's nothing different than voyeurism. We're just watching indecency and expecting to live for Christ and less of us. We're expecting to not have temptations come in in those areas. You've got to close those portals. When you've been bombarded with and surrounded by the culture's perverse morals long enough, you can become desensitized by the sheer saturation level of it. And the truth is a sentinel to stop that stuff Without that, that sentinel, that vanguard of the truth as your constant filter and conviction, your spiritual eyesight grows dim, you start to have your convictions eroded, and once reinforced convictions uh, start to become really, really weak at their base, and, and that, that hemming in embankment is eroding, and you don't know it's eroding. You're swimming around in the muck, but you just don't know it. What you listen to Maybe morally fairly decent, morally neutral. But you've got to ask a hard question. Does it promote greater spiritual health over the long haul? Could such content, I used to ask my kids this all the time when we raised them as teenagers, could such content, a steady appetite of such things, though they be morally neutral perhaps and maybe even fairly decent, So that you could say with David, I set no evil thing before my eyes. That's great. But what about things that don't have the highest spiritual ideals? What about that? It might be okay, but you've got to know your own weaknesses. You've got to know if a portal is letting something in and it continues to become excess on your life, it's slowing you down in the race. You've got to close that portal. Could those things slowly crowd out an appetite for higher spiritual ideals? I've seen it happen in my life. Some small, innocent thing, not a bad thing, but too much of it, too much of the appetite for it, suddenly it becomes a portal through which other temptations come and I become weakened. Have you been careful about what you visually take in? Have you been careful about media? 
gripping plot lines are intended to captivate your attention and your senses. I understand that. It's rich, it's rich what we're able to see. And yet you've got to ask the question, are there times when those things subtly and often even blatantly, they don't just portray beliefs, they promote beliefs and ideologies that affront Scripture. They don't just portray them, they promote them, celebrate them, exploit them, and there's no corrective. The scriptures never correct it. Good never triumphs over evil. It's just gratuitous evil. It's gratuitous unbelief, anti-God ideology, and the movie or the media promotes it in a way that affronts scripture, and you have a casual access to it on a regular basis. Beloved, that's a portal through which temptation is going to come, and your convictions are going to erode. Why? Because you just see it for the entertainment value, but you're not being careful. Again, I can't make those decisions for you. And if your conscience is already dulled, you're like that family swimming around in the muck. From overexposure, you're too close to it. You can't see that it's a portal allowing these things in to create further weakness. And so you don't, you're not urgent about closing that portal in your life. And then when some friend, someone who loves you says, Hey, could, could I ask you a question about that? Is that weakness over here being caused by this opening over here, this place you're leaving your life open? And so there's a source that's adding temptation to this otherwise already weak area. And when they say that to you, because you're swimming around in it, you you basically say to them, that's unreasonable, that's narrow, that's overkill. And really, it was wise counsel, but you just, you're already eroded in your convictions. And you end up leaving the dangerous portal open thinking you're okay. Can I just take you to one final passage? Our time is gone. 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. You have to see what Paul says here and then we're going to pick it up next time. Verse 23. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. All things, not just ministry, not just as a pastor, not just as an apostle. I do everything in my life from personal choices, which he's just been talking about in the whole chapter, the way I live, the things I choose to do, sensitivity to the people I'm around. I do all those things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? Everybody's running. But only one is going to win. So I want you to run in such a way that you may win. And then he uses the metaphor from athletics. Everyone who competes in the games, exercises, discipline in all these things, and they do it to receive a, a bunch of leaves on your head. In other words... And and bragging rights among human beings. Big deal. It's temporal. Do you even know who Mark Spitz is anymore? Some of you do. Seven gold medals in the 70s in one swimming competition at the Olympics. The rest of you haven't got a clue who he is. And you won't know in 30 years who Michael Phelps was either. Nobody knows. It's a perishable crown. He says, look, they run. They discipline their life. They achieve these great things for a human crown. But we who run the spiritual race for the sake of the gospel, verse 25, we do it for an imperishable crown. Therefore, 
I run in such a way as not without aim. I'm careful. I look at the portals. I watch out. I'm not casual. I I watch the friends I choose. I watch the places I go, the stuff coming in, the truth that's being maligned. How's it being maligned? Does the truth get vindicated in that media or does it get trashed and and error gets vindicated? Is that violence, does it have a purpose to show the evil of evil and the good of compassion and righteous things or is it just violence for violence sake? Is that perversion? Is that a perversion that I'm going to sit around and casually take part in? Is it celebrated perversion? And then if it's just illicit, I'm, I'm watching in someone else's bedroom. Clearly the scriptures, as David said in Psalm 101, warn against that. You don't put evil things before your eyes like that. Paul says, I, I run not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I punch out my body. That's literally the term. I knock it flat. I get up every day. If there's a portal, just to use the portal terminology, I close it up, I button it up, I, I nail it shut. And if, I, if it gets opened again because of my foolishness and my weakness, I got to get some more nails out and some more steel and I got I to gotta slam that thing shut. When a friend comes along and says, you need to close that portal and I got defensive and it carried me into weakness, I got to come back and say, you know what, I should have closed it when you said and I didn't close it and guess what, everything you warned happened. You know what we do when we say no and tell somebody they're unreasonable about warning us about those things? We go traipsing off into the mess and we come back and they say, where have you been? I told you not to go there. And we say, eh, no big deal. You just opened up another portal. You got to let the scriptures indict. You got to let, you got to grow and really think these things through carefully. Paul said, I, I will punch my eyes, ears, mouth, desires, whatever part of me that that wants to go towards sin, I will punch it out and make it my slave so that if I preach to others, I, I won't be disqualified. There it is. Work hard. In the grace of Christ, in the power of Christ, to work hard. I close up the portals. You know, beloved, we, we can die to self in the grace of God. He's doing those great things. He's growing our faith. He's manifesting his character, proving his power, He's going to make us a gospel witness, faithful gospel witness. We have a culture that is celebrating evil, calling evil good and good evil, and celebrating it. And we cannot go out of the world until God calls us home. So we are in the world. And we're told to run that race with endurance by laying aside all of the excess that's dragging us down in the race. So what is it for you? What are the portals through which you are naively or even deliberately letting in things that weaken you? And when it comes time to prefer Christ in that one moment, when you could honor Him and live for Him and grow in your faith and glorify Him and be more useful, you prefer yourself. Jesus said, if you want to take up your cross and follow me, it's going to mean that you deny those things. And willing to lay it all on the line and follow what I say. And to do so, we need his understanding. We've got to orient our life toward truth. We've got to let it indict and correct. 
We kind of look around at those things, Paul says, that, that we have to discipline and put down, get rid of. And so the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to fix your eyes on him, right? Fix your eyes on Christ. Well, how can you fix your eyes on Christ when you have all this stuff hanging off your life? You want to fix your eyes on Christ, get rid of the stuff. Examine it. Go before the Lord. Pray. Ask someone who knows you best and whom you will listen to, whom you trust. Say, you see any portals, any excess? And get before the Lord and say, Holy Spirit, take me on. I'm open in my heart. Let me see the things I don't yet see through which temptation is coming and it's exploiting the weaknesses I already have and I need to know that about me and I need to, I need to do this, what Paul says, not box without aim, but actually go at this aiming at the target of more of Christ and less of me. There's a whole bunch of other portals yet to cover, so <laughs> we'll have to get to those next week. We're not done with the portals. Keep that page open. All right, bow with me. Lord, thank you for this morning. You know our frame. You know our weaknesses. You know we allow things in we shouldn't allow. You know that. Lord, we, we have not known what other Christians around the world have known in much more difficult times that they must get rid of the excess that so easily entangles us in sin. We've lived in relative comfort. And no wonder we have so much baggage hanging off our life because we comfortably live in the culture and we don't, um, we don't pay careful attention to these things. But Lord, we want to, we need to. Please forgive us for treating these things so casually. And then we complain to you that temptation is hard when we're the one opening the portal and letting the floodgates in. Lord, please forgive us for allowing those floodwaters to come rushing in. And we're the ones that have been called by you to lay aside the excesses, close the portals, Nail them shut. Help us to be faithful, ever more faithful, and help each other to be faithful and to pray for one another. And may we not resist your greatest graces in these things. We pray for your glory's sake, your honor's sake. May this church be more of you and less of ourselves. Amen.